But here, the church of Pergamos. In your Bible, it may say the compromising church. And again, I'm not sharp enough to do this on purpose, but how the Lord is intertwining and interweaving all the different Bible studies we're going through. To which I ask this question, what is the theme of Leviticus? Holiness. And here what we're going to see in the church of Pergamos is what happens to a group of believers when they are not defined by holiness. That's exactly what we're going to see here. All the way from Genesis through Revelation, God calls us to be holy. Why? Because He is a holy God. And just as each of us, right, we're in this nation, we have to follow the rules of this nation. And if we're in this nation under its authority and following its rules, we're given certain benefits and blessings and protection. Same should be true in our homes. Each and every one of the moms and dads here, if you have sons and daughters, nephews and nieces, whoever you have living in your home, they're granted certain blessings. Food in the fridge, the bills taken care of, the AC on, certain privileges, but they have to be obedient to the rules of the authority in that home. And the same is true for us if we are a part of the family of God. There's much blessing there. There's a love, a hope, and a peace, a joy that can be found nowhere else in this universe. However, if we want to partake in these blessings, we have to be obedient to the governing authority. We have to be obedient to the Lord. We have to be living in holiness. We have to be known for our holiness, our set-apartness, set-apart away from this world, Set apart for a relationship with Jesus and set apart for the work of Jesus. You could just write down Matthew 13 verses 24 through 43. And here Jesus gives a parable of the wheat and the tares. Another great picture here for the church of Pergamos. Because growing up inside of this church there were wheat and there was tares. And now instead of just ripping them all out at once hurting one another, breaking one another, Jesus tells them that in the end, they're gonna, the harvesters are going to reap all of the harvest. They're going to gather the wheat and bring them into the storehouses of heaven, and they're going to gather the tares and cast them into the burning eternal fires of hell. And the difference between the wheat and the tares, it's difficult to see at first. At first, they look the same as they're growing, but over time, you're able to see the fruits of each of these plants. And Jesus, he says, the main difference is that the tares are the sons of the wicked one, and the enemy is the one who sowed them. The weed are those who are the sons of God, the sons of the kingdom of God. So as we journey through a look at the letter to this church, we should be asking ourselves, Am I a son of God or am I a son of the wicked one? Am I a daughter of God or am I a daughter of the wicked one? And it's all connected to who you obey. In Romans chapter 6, I'm trying to run through these quickly. We finished late at the 9 and I added more scriptures to go through, so that's not a good combination. But Romans chapter 6, verse 16 through 18, it tells us, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey you are that one's slaves, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Family, friend, are you obedient to God and to his word 
Or are you obedient to sin and the ideology of this world? Whoever you are giving your life in obedience to, you are that slave, whether you like it or not. That's just the way it is. If you're obedient to God and his word, then you're a son of God. You're a son of the kingdom of God. If you're obedient to your sins and to the ideology of this world, then you are a son or daughter of the wicked one. In Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 15, it tells us that if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if we live by the Spirit and we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. And check out verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Again, family, friend, who's leading your life? Who's leading your life? If we're being led by the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is always going to be in line with the Word of God, you are a son or daughter of God, and you will live, and your life will bear life and that abundantly. Your singlehood, your engagement, your marriage, your children, your children's children, your bank account, your work ethic will have life and life abundantly flowing out of it. However, if we are being led by the flesh, if we are led by sin, if we are led by the spirit of the wicked one, then our morals will be in line with the morals and ideas of this world. And if that's the case, we are a son of the wicked one. There's no middle child. You're not a stepson or half son, half to the wicked one and half to the son of God. It's one or the other. And if we are a son or daughter of the wicked one, we will have death not only in this life, but death to come in life eternal. Again, every aspect of your life will have death and death breeding from it. Your singleness, your engagement, your marriage, your children, your children's children, your bank account. This is just how it works. Whatever we sow to, we will reap a hundredfold, whatever we're sowing to. So we come now to verse 12. It says, To the angel of the church of Pergamos write these things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Again, we know Jesus, he's drawing from Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, and he's giving different characteristics of who he is. And each and every one of the other characteristics of the other churches has been encouraging. However, Jesus says, hey, I'm writing to you holding an AK-47. That's basically what he'd be saying today. Writing to you, he who has a large weapon in his hand. It's again, not so comforting, right? But the, the city of Pergamos, it's also known as the city of Pergamum. Little historical facts here. I never thought I'd ever be a history teacher in my life, but every once in a while it is what it is. Pergamos was the Roman capital city of Asia Minor. It was not on the coast of the ocean, so it did not have a major port like the two cities we looked at previously. So not having a major port city, it's difficult to gain and accrue wealth in ancient civilization. So they gained wealth by other means. Pergamos was a city of religion, medicine, and education. This was the culture of Pergamos. A lot of smart people, a lot of white-collared people would live in this city. Pergamos was home to the second largest library in the ancient world. It was housing over 200,000 volumes of books. 
Ladies, if you think your husband has a bad habit of buying books he never reads, imagine this, 200,000 volumes of books. And again, this is way before a printing press. It would be 200,000 handwritten scrolls. It was only second to the famous library in Alexandria. And there was a rivalry between these two libraries. Who would have ever thought there could be a, li- uh, right, a rivalry between libraries, right? But you had the library in Alexandria and the library in Pergamos. So Alexandria in Egypt, they began to withhold their shipments of papyrus, which was the ancestor of paper. That's how they originally wrote scrolls in order to impede their progress in growing their library. To meet this emergency, they began dressing the skins of animals and taking the leather so that they created a new material called pergamus, which would later become parchment. And that's how they began to write their scrolls. The rivalry between these two cities ended when Mark Anthony removed the library from Pergamos and he sent it to Alexandria as a gift to the Egyptian queen, Cleopatra, with whom he was infatuated with. Again, you can make some dumb decisions when you're in love, right? But that's what he does. Pergamos was also another very religious city, like the other two cities we looked at. They had many different temples to many different gods. Greek gods, Roman gods, all types of gods. One of the nicknames of this city was the City of Temples. It was actually the first city to have a temple dedicated to Caesar. And then 50 years later, that temple would be built in Smyrna, which we looked at last time we were together. They had temples built and dedicated to Jupiter, to Zeus, to Athena, to Dionysus. To Asclepius, the Greek god of medicine, and he was also known as the god of Pergamum. He was known as the god of healing, and he was represented by a large serpent. And this temple was half medical school and half temple. And people from all over the Roman Empire would travel to Pergamos to come to the temple of Asclepius so that they can be healed from their different ailments. William Barclay, speaking on how you'd come here to be healed, he said you'd go to this temple and the sufferers would spend their night in the darkness of the temple. You would go and you'd sleep over in this temple and in the middle of the night they would release tame snakes, non-poisonous snakes. And in the night the sufferer would hope to be touched by one of these tame, harmless snakes and have them glided over their bodies over the ground on which they lay. And they would say the touch of the snake was held to be the touch of God himself. And the touch was to bring health and healing. I think many people here would never be healed if that was the case, right? Hey, you want to be healed? Let's go to this creepy pagan temple. We're going to spend the night there. We're going to release some snakes and hopefully one will crawl over your body, right? That was the hope of this city. This is the city in which they live in. And again, the author of this letter is he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Again, this is the sword we read about in Revelation 1.16. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. It's not speaking of a, a quick sword or of a short dagger. It's speaking of a long sword. A heavy sword. This is a six-foot-long sword that was known to slice straight through a man from his head to his groin. Right? Sometimes in the movies you see people on horses with these giant swords and they would use them to cut through the horses and bring down the rider. In Luke 2, verse 34 through 35, this same word is used to speak of the 
hurt Mary will feel when she sees her son upon the cross. He says, a sword will pierce through your own soul. It was a figure for extreme anguish that would fill the soul. Again, this sword, it was not a letter opener. This sword, it wasn't something you just put on display. This sword wasn't used to carve your Thanksgiving turkey. This sword was in no doubt a weapon of extreme devastation. That's what this sword was. And Jesus says, hey, I am riding to you with this great weapon in my hand. And it's sharp and it's two-edged. Again, we looked at Spurgeon. He says, there's no way to handle this weapon without cutting yourself. The words of Christ, one way or another, will cut you to your core. A.R. said, he says, this two-edged sword from Jesus has a two-fold bearing. It has a searching power that will convict and convert some. And it has a searching power that will convict and condemn others to punishment eternally. Again, very similar to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 through 13, where God's word tells us that the word of God, it's living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Again, family, God's word will cut you straight to your heart, and it's going to reveal your true thoughts and your true intents. And once it reveals our true thoughts and true intents, we go about it in two ways. We either humble ourselves and we're converted. We're healed. We can be fixed through Jesus Christ and his blood. However, sadly, some of us, when we've been cut to the heart, we react in pride. And then we dig our heels in and the only thing this leads to is pain and punishment. Jesus uses this sword as the foundation of his conversation with the church in Pergamos. All we believe, everything we say, every habit we have, every decision we make needs to be confronted with the word of God. And once all of who we are is confronted with the word of God, we'll be cut. And once we're cut, the question is, will we be cut with a heart of humility leading to healing and restoration Or will we be cut with a heart of pride and idolatry, which leads to rot and leads to death? Right? You could think of Jesus' words. He says, you think I've come into this world to bring peace. I came into this world to bring a sword, to cause division, to cause fractions. Because each of us, when God's word comes into our life, it leaves us with a decision. Are we going to really hail Jesus as our King and our Lord? Or is a family member, a boss, a certain character, a certain follower count, a certain dollar amount, a certain guy or girl we like, a certain sin, a certain feeling, is that our Lord? In verse 13, again, a lot of comfort, a lot of fear and conviction. Jesus knows everything about us. He tells them, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You see, Jesus knows our deeds. And he knows where we live. He knows the influences and the culture of the city we live in. He knows our deeds, whether they're a lot or a little, whether they're holy or unholy, whether our works are good, bad, or ugly. He sees and knows every work. Now, Miami, it's a pretty pagan city, right? Every pastor that comes, they're always talking about how people dress here, how it's madness, how the women dress around here. 
And that's what happens when you're in a warm climate and near the beach, right? Compared to living in negative 10 degrees of weather, right? You can't really dress the same unless you want frostbite. But in Miami, it's pretty pagan here. However, Jesus says that Pergamos is where the throne of Satan is. And he sees that. Jesus is able to see the demonic oppression over a city. He's able to tell the church in Pergamos, hey, I see your works, and I know how difficult it is to live where you live. Again, there's a little bit of comfort there for us that if you're the only believer in your family, Jesus sees where you're at. He sees the difficulties. He sees the stresses in your life. Man, I want to love them, but I know that you've got to be convicted. Ah, how do I have the perfect grace and mercy and righteousness all at the same time? Jesus sees that. Jesus also sees if we live in a very strong Christian home, and now we're the ones going to outside influences for our sin and for our pain. Jesus sees where you dwell. Again, this is also a reminder, the throne of Satan, that Satan is not equal to God. He's not equal to Jesus. He is not all-powerful. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent, and he's probably not messing with you personally, right? Oftentimes you think, ah, oh, the devil made me do it, right? I thought I was going to do this diet. It's only January 23rd, and man, Satan brought those brownies into my mouth, right? It's his fault. The devil made me do it. I'm, I'm afraid not, friend, right? More often than not, we're the ones going after sin. More often than not, we're the ones being led away by our own lusts inside. Satan has bigger fish to fry. However, Jesus tells the church of Pergamos that Satan's headquarters is there in their city. Scholars try to argue and reason, why is this the location of Satan's throne? There's lots of reasons why. Perhaps it could be this weird serpent god that we talked about, Ascleopas, and they would literally go for healing and they would call Ascleopas their savior. They would call Ascleopas the great physician, the great healer. Perhaps that's why. Some believe it's because Pergamos was the political center of this Caesar worship, where you'd have to go annually and sacrifice, sprinkle that offering to Caesar. Others think it's because in Pergamos, they had a huge throne-like altar dedicated to the Roman god Zeus. And it's important for us to know, there is no Roman god Zeus. None of these gods exist. So every single one of these ancient temples are just temples to Satan. That's all that they are. They're not temples to God or this God or that God. No, they are all temples to Satan. A little bit of strangeness, creepiness, especially when you're studying at 1 and 2, 3 in the morning. But in 1864, a German engineer named Carl Heumann began excavating the ancient city of Pergamos. And there he found the ancient altar of Zeus, one of the wonders of the ancient world. And he began bringing this altar stone by stone to Berlin. They would one day in 1930 put the Pergamon Museum on display and open to the public. Later on in the 1930s, the Nazi party's chief architect, Albert Speer, was sent by Adolf Hitler to design a stage and a meeting ground to have their speeches and conduct their Nazi propaganda meetings. And this architect looked at nothing other than the throne of Zeus for his idea to build the Zeppelin Tribune. Whereas now where you see those creepy black and white uh, videos of Adolf Hitler and his speeches and everybody there. 
Again, weird stuff, strange stuff, but Satan can only be at one place at a time. So again, you may think you have it bad in your home. You may think you may have it bad in your city, but I don't think we're living where the throne of Satan is. And he tells them, I know your works, and I know where you live. And now he's complimenting them. He says, you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. In spite of living in such a demonic city, the church of Pergamos was strong. They held to the name of Jesus. They did not deny his faith. And when speaking of holding fast to the name of Jesus, this means that they would not surrender to the lordship of Caesar. They would not surrender to worshiping Caesar there annually. Today, there are people that take this out of context. There's a movement that will knock on your door on the weekends. There are movements that will come at you through social media telling you that you have to use the right name of God or the right name of Jesus. That there's some type of Rumpelstiltskin effect that if you use the wrong name of God or the wrong name of Jesus, you're really calling to the Greek gods or Roman gods or to Baal or this, that, or the third. That you don't use the ancient Hebrew name of Jehovah or Yahweh or Yeshua. You're really calling to these pagan gods and God will cast you into hell because of this. This isn't the case. These same movements believe in flat earth. These same movements believe the history books are lying about Native Americans, that America was really belonging to black Hebrews, so you should pay no attention to them. But again, this is not what Jesus is referring to. These are believers who refuse to partake in any other worship than Jesus Christ as Lord. They did not allow any idols to come into their lives. They would not surrender even an inch to go and worship Caesar there annually at the temple. They would never declare Caesar is Lord to protect their businesses or their families. And we saw in Smyrna how costly that was to their lives. Jesus was the Lord of their lives and nothing else, no matter the cost. Family, can we say that about ourselves? Jesus is our Lord no matter the cost. If it costs me a business, cause me a job, if it cause me this boyfriend or girlfriend, if it breaks this engagement, if it breaks my relationship with my kids, if it breaks my relationship with a cousin, with a brother, with a sister, Jesus is the Lord of my life. Are we able to say that? First John chapter 2 verse 23 says, whoever denies the son does not have the father either. You see, if you have a wrong understanding of who Jesus is, you have everything in this life wrong. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. Not only would they offer lordship to any other, but they believed every biblical truth of who Jesus was and is and is to come. You see, today we try to make Christianity more palatable. We try to make Christianity more believable. A virgin birth, maybe that's not really the case. I can't really understand that, so let's pick that up. Yeah, you could get saved without virgin birth. No, that's, that's not correct. Right? Uh, within this century, many Christians, they began saying, oh, the world, God didn't really create the universe in six days. That's too crazy to believe. So each day is a thousand years so that we can get more people who believe in evolution to believe what we believe. You see, family, we should not be trying to dumb down our belief in God or in his word. Well, look at a moment. Balaam, Balaam's donkey talked to him. Is that that far-fetched, Right? 
And now a talking donkey compared to creating the heavens and the earth in six days, which is more crazy to believe, right? A worldwide flood, all of these things happening. Do we have faith? They held to the name of Jesus, who he was, the biblical Jesus, fully God, fully man, virgin birth, paid for our sins. They believed every aspect of Jesus. And they did not deny the faith. They believed and lived every word and every facet of who Jesus is and what the Bible teaches. Not just in their minds, but through their life and their morals. Right today, what's the church trying to make more palatable? Oh, homosexuality. The Bible doesn't really talk about that. Gender, ah, the Bible doesn't really talk about that. I saw this guy on YouTube. He said this, that, and the third. You do a couple of theology gymnastics, and it's not in there, right? We have to be careful with that. Are we holding true to who Jesus is, and are we living by the faith? You see, there's a, a danger for us, especially if we've grown up in church, that we may have all the theology right in our minds. You may be here, and you may be able to go on Jeopardy and answer every Bible question perfectly. And there's a danger there because even the demons believe and know that Jesus is the only son of God. However, there's no faith there. There's no evidence of their lives that Jesus is the son of God and now they are following him. And that's a danger for many of us who've grown up in church. That's a danger for us as parents because we can think just because my kid knows all the right biblical answers, they must be saved. And if there's no faith in your life, you're not saved. Because God's word tells us without faith, it's impossible to please him. And without faith, James tells us, without works, our faith is dead. So you may be here and know every Bible question, every Bible answer. But if your life is not living with the faith of every word of what the Bible says, you're in danger, friend. Their lives were given to the name of Christ and the faith of Jesus Christ, not just in their minds, but through their life and through their morals. All of these three things have to be attached. Faith without works is dead. You can't say, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ, but your life is a wreck. Or your life, how we started, is living according to this world and the ideology of this world. He then says, Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Bible doesn't speak much about Antipas. We're given this one sentence here. We know that Antipas was probably the pastor of this church and he was martyred. The only thing we know is that he was put to death by literally being roasted alive in a brass bowl that was placed into a furnace there in an altar. And Antipas, his name means against all. Against all. And family, this is who we should be as Christians and believers. We should be against all. William Barclay, he says, martyr is the ancient Greek word martus. And martus is a most interesting and suggestive word. In classical Greek, martus never meant a martyr in our sense of the word. It always meant witness. However, a martus was one who said, this is true and I know it. One who said, this is true, and I know it. And family, this is how we're called to live. The Bible has a monopoly on the truth, and we should not apologize about it. The Bible holds the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And you don't have to sit here and try to feel bad about it. 
This world has no apologies for the truth they think they hold on gender, the truth they think they hold on marriage, the truth they think they hold on sexuality, the truth they think they hold that your kids aren't really your kids. They belong to the society at large. They don't apologize about that whatsoever. Yet more often than not, we as Christians apologize for the truth that we are given. And we should be living as a martyr, one who says, this is true and I know it. The word of God is true. A man and a woman, this is true. Any type of sex outside of one biological male and one biological female who are married is sinful and wrong. Whether it's pornography with a woman, with a man, with an animal, whatever the case may be, it is wrong and sinful. We have the truth. We shouldn't apologize about it. Speaking the truth in love. So there's a lot of good things happening in this church. However, in verse 14 and 15, Jesus turns to the more difficult part of this. He says, I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. You see, the church of Pergamos was a church filled with compromise. And is that not a term, an idea that is just being forced down every single person today? We need to compromise. We need to compromise. We need to be willing. We need to be inclusive no matter what's going on. That word compromise, it's when you give something of value away in hope of getting something of greater value. And there are many times in life when it's good to compromise. When a husband and wife are arguing where they should go out to eat, you should compromise, right? And you as a husband, you should be looking for something of greater value, which is peace and quiet and a good car ride home, right? <laughs> and you compromise, say, honey, wherever you want to eat, we'll go, right? There's compromise there. Sometimes the kids, they're that dripping, that dripping faucet and you compromise, right? When you're trying to decide where you're going for Christmas or Thanksgiving, it's important that you find a compromise, right? These things are important. However, one of the first synonyms for compromise is surrender. Surrender. And again, family, there are things we should compromise, but there are many things that we should never surrender. And the biblical truths we hold... We should never surrender. Never, ever surrender. And there's a lie that we are being told that what love really means is to surrender these truths. Is that truly the loving thing to do? Do you want your doctor to surrender the truths about the cancer in your body or how overweight you are or the tumors going on or the cyst inside of you because he might hurt your feelings? Because that might be a difficult conversation? Is that the loving thing to do or would you sue him for malpractice? He knew what was wrong and yet he withheld information out of love and being inclusive. You see, the problem with the church of Pergamos was not even that the church believed these doctrines. It wasn't that their leaders were teaching them, that the leaders were believing them. It was that they were allowing people in their church who held to the doctrine of Balaam and who held to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Balaam, we don't have time to go there. We looked at it in Jude. We looked at it a little bit in 1 Peter. Balaam, you could look him up in Numbers 22 through 24 and in Numbers 31. 
And Balaam was a big-time prophet in ancient history, and the king of the Moabites wanted to curse the nation of Israel as they were coming through the promised land, clearing out the land, the Lord giving them land. So this king of the Moabites, he gets Balaam and he bribes him. He pays him, hey, pronounce a curse on the people of Israel. So every time he goes to try to curse them, only blessings of God would pour out. Every time, time and time again, he goes, he's mad at his donkey. The donkey has an angel in front of him with a sword. The donkey stops, starts beating the donkey. The donkey turns on and starts talking to him. Again, crazy story, right? But in the end, Balaam tells the Moab king, hey, there's no way. I just can't curse them. If they're living according to God and his word, there's no curse I can pour out against them. So the king basically says, okay, where's my refund? You get no money. You get no payment. Balaam says, okay. If you really want to curse the nation of Israel, send your beautiful Moab women into the tents of the Israelites. And as they fall for them, as they have sex with them, as they come joined to these Moabites, they'll begin to worship the Moabite gods. They'll begin to have sexual immorality. As they begin to compromise and begin to worship their gods, eat food that's sacrificed to their gods, have sex outside of marriage, then God will be forced to discipline them and come against them. Again, compromise within the church, Jesus isn't down with that. This is Jesus writing to the church of Pergamos, telling them that this is not right. This is not okay. And there are many churches that talk about sex and immorality is just not that bad. And it's a lie. Again, we said any type of sex, one born male, one born female, married with Caesar, married according to the law. You filled out that marriage thing in the courthouse, however annoying it is to go to a government building and sign up for that. And being married by the Lord. Any type of sex outside of that agreement is sin. And if anyone is practicing it habitually and the church knows about it and does not confront them, they are doing that person a disservice and not a blessing. We need to be careful with this. But in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 11, it tells us, You who once were in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord, walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Again, this is not a commandment to a church. This is not a commandment to a church pastor. This is a commandment through Paul to the church of Ephesus for every believer. If you're here and you're saying you're going to heaven when you die, it is your duty that if another believer is not walking in the light and they're walking in the unfruitful works of darkness, your role as a brother, your role as an obedient son or daughter of God is to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. I told you this teaching isn't that feel good, right? But this is what we must do. Now, this isn't just one anomaly. We're going to run through these. Romans 16, verse 17. He says, I urge you, note those who cause divisions among you and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. That's to mark them, take note of them, and avoid them. This is speaking of believers. Again, this is a whole separate teaching. But the way you deal with unbelievers and believers, it's two separate ways. One of the things they, the Pharisees complained about Jesus was what? He ate with tax collectors. He ate with harlots. He ate with the worst of the worst. 
Yet Jesus, he'd eat with them, but how he would change the conversations around to the kingdom of God. This is speaking of someone that says they're a believer, but yet they're denying the faith. They're not being obedient to what the scripture says about sex or gossip or gender or marriage or many other topics that are found in the word of God. Philippians chapter 3, powerful chapter. I encourage you to read it when you get home. Paul says, after speaking how Paul's going for the upward calling, he says, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Again, Paul is saying, you've seen the way I'm walking. I am trying to chase the upward calling of God. I'm trying to chase the highest end of holiness that I can chase. You've seen my example, and now you should mark those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. He's speaking to a church. There are people in the church, and he's saying they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And what we should do is note them in weeping, in brokenness, but note them and mark them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14 through 15, it says, If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother." That word admonish, it's to caution them. It's to warn them. It's to reprove them gently. It's to criticize and to warn gently but seriously. This is our role as a believer if there's another believer who's walking in a sinful pattern of life. You are to criticize them in love, one-on-one. And we hate, some of us, we hate that word, right? Criticize, ah. So mean, right? When your doctor goes over your notes, if things are bad, what is he doing? He's criticizing you, right? When your coach is working on your form, what is he doing? He's criticizing you. Now, hopefully, I've talked about it with someone earlier. You want a doctor that has bedside manner, right? I mean, if if your doctor is going to tell you you're going to die, you don't want a doctor, hey, you think you could put me on your will? you got about a week to live, right? You don't want a doctor like that. That's terrible. We are to have, in a sense, bedside manner when we're having these difficult conversations with believers, but we're called to have these difficult conversations. It's to note them, to not keep company with them, not because they are your enemy and you never want to see them again, but because they are your brother. You're trying to do this so that they miss the fellowship. You're trying to do this so they miss the body of believers. That's the whole point and goal of this. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. We are to expose it. We are to criticize it. We are to warn it with a gentle warning, but with a heart of spiritual restoration, a heart and a spirit of gentleness, knowing we are a man as well. Knowing we are tempted day in and day out as well. Knowing that we fall day in and day out. And Paul, he practices what he preaches. In Galatians chapter 2 verse 11, Paul says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him face to face. 
Paul, when he saw Peter, knowing Peter was in sin, he called him out to his face. Paul practiced what he believed, and later on, Peter wouldn't talk about Paul in bad light. He would talk about him as a beloved brother. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 17. Encourage you to read it. There, there's the balance of how God chastens those who he loves and how those who need to be strengthened, to have their hands strengthened and their knees strengthened to those who have already been broken by the chastening. There's a great balance there. And we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to wield that double-edged sword and say, Lord, does this person need that gentle criticism? Or Lord, does this person just need that comfort? Dude, you sinned, you blew it, that's fine. Have you confessed it before the Lord? Have you gotten right with your brother or sister? Go and sin no more. That's what Jesus does. But if you're in the midst of it, Jesus often would say, repent and go and sin no more. And that's exactly what he says in verse 16 and 17. Repent or else. Jesus would say such a thing. Yeah, that's what he said. Repent or else. And we've heard that on the playground, right? You got to do this or else. And you say, or else what? Right? We've all been there, right? It's one thing when a five-year-old tells you or else. It's one thing when a weak person tells you or else. It's another thing when the omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing Jesus, wielding the double-edged sword, tells to you, repent or else. It's a whole other thing. And this word, again, when it's spoken to us, we hate it. You're using the R word on me? How dare you, right? But repentance is such a beautiful thing when we see it in the lives of other people. When we see someone addicted to fentanyl or alcohol and we see them go through cleansing and we see them restored with their family, we see repentance. It's beautiful. It's a joy. When you see a husband or a wife caught in adultery and they go through repentance, they go through restoration, they have the fruit of repentance in their life and now the family is healed, it's beautiful. It's incredible. But now when someone calls you out and calls you to the side in love and says, hey, man, you're doing these things, you have to repent, how dare you, right? How dare you say such hateful things? This is Jesus saying this. Every once in a while in the church, I wish it would never happen, but it does happen, we have to have church discipline. And there's someone walking in doctrines not taught here. There's someone holding to truths that we don't teach here, whether they're sinful or crazy doctrine or this doctrine or that doctrine. And the good news and bad news of America is there's a church that teaches whatever it is that you believe. Whether it's good, bad, ugly, sinful, or just crazy. There's a church that teaches that. But God has called the leaders in this church to teach certain things. And if you're wanting to teach other things, God's already brought teachers into this church. However, sometimes when that happens, we say, man, is that really the loving thing to do? Is that really merciful? Is that really gracious? Sometimes we even say, is that Christ-like? But that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, notice, he's not going to fight against his bride. He's not going to fight against the church of Pergamos. He's going to fight against those believers or those non-believers that the believers are allowing to stay in the church because of compromise. Because of so-called love. He says, if you do not repent, I will come quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, what a warning to us. Don't buy into the lies of the world today that have rearranged and skewed and perverted what true love actually means. True love is having difficult conversations. 
True love is standing on the truth. True love is having convictions and being obedient and following those convictions. Many churches today are trying so hard to look like this world, feel like this world. So many churches want everyone to feel welcome and comfortable in their church for all of eternity. And this may be difficult, but that is not a biblical church. At a certain point, a sinner that does not want to be saved should feel uncomfortable in a biblical church. If you have COVID and you go into the hospital, can you just do whatever you feel like in the hospital? Are you just allowed in every wing, every room? You have COVID, you go into the hospital, man, I just want to go into the NICU. I just want to hold a little baby. It'll help me feel better. It doesn't work that way. You got to go to a specific room, a specific ward. You're only allowed certain visitors. You have to follow the rules and regulations if you want to be healed. If you don't want to be healed, find another hospital. You're not welcome here. And that's the same truth of God's word. If you want to be healed, if you want to be cleansed and restored and hold to the truths of God's word, again, you're welcome here. But if you just want to stay in sin and never repent and think that you can live in a way that's against the word of God and God's going to be okay with you because of your church attendance at Calvary Chapel, Miami, you should feel uncomfortable. Because that's what God is calling each of us to do in our own families. Not to have fellowship with someone who's claiming they're a believer and living in sinfulness. Verse 17, he who has an ear. Anybody here have an ear? I got two, right? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Again, Jesus is saying this is not just for the church of Pergamos. This is not just for the church at large at Calvary Chapel, Miami. This is not just for the pastors. This is for each and every one of us personally. Am I allowing compromise in my life? Am I saying this isn't really that bad? Huh? This isn't really that bad. That show, that movie, eh, I can do some gymnastics and say it's okay, right? My speech, my music, is it that of a saint or is it that of a sinner, right? The way I speak, the way I treat my kids, the way I treat my wife, would someone see that I say, man, there's something different about this man. Say, yeah, you're a pagan just like the rest of us, right? What would they say about us? To him who overcomes. We started off with that scripture in John. Jesus says, hey, don't take them out of the world, but allow them to have the truth of God's word in their lives so that they can be a light to the world around them. Never surrender. Never compromise. We have the truth. Let us stand by it. Not being obnoxious. Not being a jerk, but speaking the truth in love. Calling others to repentance. That's what Jesus did to us. He didn't just say, Zach, stay in your sin. Stay the way you are. I'll help you feel better about yourself. I'll help you find your true self. That's not what it's about whatsoever. It's say you've sinned. You've fallen short of the glory of God. Come to me. Man, I'll give you rest. Come to me. Leave behind your former lifestyle, and I will give you rest. To him who overcomes. Not to him who's politically correct, not to him who's the quote-unquote most loving, to him who's the most inclusive. No, it's to him who overcomes. They will be given, basically, heaven. They'll be given life eternally. This hidden manna to eat, it's speaking of the word of God. How God provided for the nation of Israel out in the wilderness, 
raining down tons of manna on the earth each morning, right? Except for the Sabbath. God wants to give each of us hidden manna, words from the word of God to feed us and restore us and strengthen us. It says, I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name which no one knows except him who receives it. This white stone is a stone of acceptance. In ancient courtrooms, either the judges or the jury, they would each be given a white stone and a black stone. And at the end of the hearing, they would each turn in which stone they wanted. And depending if you got overwhelming white stones, you'd be acquitted. You'd be allowed to be go and be free. But if you were given a bunch of black stones, hey, that's it. You're being thrown into prison. You're being thrown into jail. And if we are overcomers, if we follow the path of Jesus who is in this world and not of it, in this world and not owned by it, not forced in it, but he was transformed how we need to be by the renewing of our mind. He was transformed being obedient to the words of his father day in and day out. And we will be given that white stone that we can get into heaven and God says, hey, you're acquitted. Your sins have been paid for. You're forgiven. Welcome and enter in my rest. And then it says we will each be given a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. And God just has a thing with giving people new names, right? From Genesis to Revelation. Whether it's Jacob and Israel, right? Abram, Abraham, Simon to Peter, Saul to Paul, all over scripture. And I don't know what you've been called. I've been called many things, good, bad, and ugly, right? Got lots of nicknames, good ones, bad ones, right? Each of us do. But one day, if we're a believer, we will be given a new name by Jesus himself. A name and title of endearment. A name of what he has seen in us that perhaps we haven't seen in ourselves. But that will be only given to him who is an overcomer. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life. So that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Again, family, we should live in a way that we are blameless. We should love and cling to those things that are good. And we should absolutely abhor those things that are evil. We should not make compromises with the truth of God's word. It's simple for us in Romans. Cling to that which is good and abhor those things which are evil, television, music, friendships, family members. Each of us, we need to go to the word of God and allow the word of God to cut us to the heart. That we'd be working out our salvation in fear and trembling, knowing that God is the one who's going to do the work. But each of us, we have to come to him separately. And you have to ask the Lord, what is your will for my life? Again, my measure of being in the world and with unbelievers 
is going to be different because I have a wife. I have three young kids. It's going to be different than you if you're a grandparent and you have no children in your home. So each of us, we need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, what is my home to look like? There are certain things. There's just no way around them, right? A believer who says they're a believer and constantly walking in sin, we went through like 10 scriptures, right? That's just the way it is. But it's always out of a heart of grace and love and trying to win someone over. Again, let us look at love in a biblical way and not what the world says. It's not just, eh, that's not that bad. No, true love covers a multitude of sins when the sins have been dealt with. Past tense. Someone comes to you, they've gotten right with the Lord. They've gotten right with whatever brother or sister. They are working out the fruits of repentance. Hey, you cover those sins. Like Jesus said, hey, those are no more. Leave those things behind. Go and do no more. However, if there are any of us here that we're living in unrepentant sin, habitual sin, man, you should come up front and pray with one of the pastors. Uh, Ken Gray's one of the tangents he went on. It's so true. There's a difference between a sheep and a pig. There's a difference between a sheep and a pig. A sheep, like, kind of gets dirty in the mud, and they're like, ah, I got mud on me, right? They're sort of freaking out about it. They want to get, get it off, get it off. They go to the shepherd, right? Get this off of me. But a pig goes to the mud and wallows in it and sits in it and rolls in it and feels at home in the mud. Friend, who are you? Do you feel at home in the mud? Do you feel at home with the world? Do you feel at home in your sin? Or is there a conviction they say, man, I need to go to my shepherd. Only he can cleanse me. Only he can restore me. I love my shepherd too much to stay in this mud. And that's the great difference. Each of us, we fall. Each of us, we are fallen, broken creatures. But are you wallowing in your sin? Or are you wanting to cry out to the Lord saying, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. 